Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. It's not easy tracking down a private eye like Maurice Hicks, but he's had some incredible adventures that he shares with us in his book, Looking for Trouble. So you're a busy guy, huh? Yes, yes, I am. But I also have another job. And um, so uh, I'm in a government facility. So, Oh, you're in Maryland. Everybody's in a government facility, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. What do you do? Sure. Yeah, work for the State Department as an investigations case manager. Oh, and yeah. then on the side... Yeah, PR work. Yes. People come to you and say, I think my wife is cheating, that kind of stuff? Um, I used to get a lot of that. Not so much anymore. What what made you start writing? Or have you always been a writer? Years ago, I wrote um, a chapter in a police investigation book years, many years ago on uh, undercover operations and drug stuff. And but I've always I've always had a passion for writing, even when I was in uh, I was in um, junior high school and high school. I had a patch for writing. I got selected by my English teacher to write a letter to the president when I was in the 10th grade. Oh. Yes. So what made you write this, Looking for Trouble? Two things. First of all, I've been teaching at the University of Maryland Global Campus for 22 years. And I use a lot of my case, my actual cases as case studies for my students. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them until the end it was actually a case that I had. They thought it was just some abstract case. And then they would, be, and they would say to me, oh, my God, this, this would make a great book. And I heard that so many times that I finally decided to go ahead and write the book. And then the one other thing, you know, uh, as I was traveling across the U.S. over the years, I inadvertently uh, run into people who asked me what I did for a living. And I would tell them in law enforcement, and they would ask me, tell me about your greatest case, you know, your most interesting case. And I would tell them, and they would say the same thing. My God, this would make a great book. So tell me about your book. The, the, the book basically covers 10 years of my 20 in law enforcement. And it basically, it, it runs down my transformation from a rookie police officer to a veteran detective. And along the way, uh, I run into a a person who aspires and eventually becomes a drug kingpin. And I had run-ins with him when I'm a rookie officer. And as I ascend to become a detective, he ascends to become a kingpin. So I set off on this uh, 10-year journey to try to bring him to justice. And he's suspected of about 12 murders. So he ascends. I go from patrol to major narcotics to homicide and eventually to the FBI in the relentless pursuit of trying to catch this this kingpin who's basically wreaking havoc in this one community that I used to patrol as a patrol officer. Was it a community <laughs> in Baltimore? Initially it was in Baltimore, and then eventually this, this kingpin was in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a D.C. suburb right near Washington, D.C. I mean, how frustrating must it be to see this guy rising through the ranks and you know, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you're doing your job, but you, I mean, how come it took you 10 years? Yes, because uh, one thing is because he's a very clever criminal. 
And the second thing, he had the best lawyer's money could buy. Oh. And for him, with each acquittal comes enormous insight into the criminal, the loopholes in the criminal justice system. And then, you know, he was operating in multiple jurisdictions, so there's a lack of communication between law enforcement agencies. So a lot of those things added to, to the frustration. And then for me, there was even more frustration because a lot of people that he was suspected of killing were people that I, I knew, you know, that I had, uh, you know, run into as a patrol officer and, you know, ran to them, but talked to them, got to know them and, you know, their families. And, you know, it was, it was just heartbreaking, you know, to, to see they were getting, you know, these young men were getting killed at such a young age. I, I'm sure you're familiar with The Wire, right? Absolutely. I mean, how true to life is that? Very close to uh, reality, other than the area that I forgot what they called called the area they had in a wire where it was like lawlessness. They could pretty much operate. But other than that, it's pretty much on point. You know, um, capturing the drug de- the drug the drug culture. And it's yeah, it's pretty much on point. Um, the you know the the uh, the subculture and police work. You know, the rivalry between um, you know. Uh, different uh, drug dealers and things like that. I, I mean, it was so hard to watch that at times because the kids, yes. you know, the teachers who wanted to help, mm-hmm. you know, these mm-hmm. kids and they would go home and their parents were doing drugs and they had no, no support system whatsoever. And there was no way, it was like there was no way to save them and they ended up, you know, they would start out as kids and they would, you know, they would have hopes and dreams. And the next thing you know, you know, they're doing heroin like everybody else, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I know firsthand because I grew up in Baltimore, you know, um, the uh, where I lived on Park Heights Avenue. They had a sh- shooting gallery right across the street from where I live. I used to watch people shoot up heroin pretty, practically every day, you know, and go on crime sprees. You know, so I, I know firsthand a sense of hopelessness and you know, feeling like you're you're living under siege, especially as a child, because a lot is I remember seeing it as early as 11 years old. And you were somehow able to escape. Yes, I, I've, you know, I felt really blessed. And, and that's really what pushed me in my destiny, watching these guys shooting up heroin. You know, every day I had to come out and see that and people doing what they call uh, the, the nickname they call it the dope fiendling, you know, uh, bent all over and having needles stuck in their arms asleep, things like that. You know, it was just, you know, it's just horrific for a child to see. And that's really what kind of propelled me into law enforcement, seeing, you know, growing up, uh, seeing that and, and later becoming a narcotics detective. What are we doing wrong? Why did it take you 10 years to mm-hmm. catch a drug kingpin? Well, one of the things that, that's frustrating about neighborhoods, and I talk about this in a book, is that people are afraid to provide information to the police. And they're afraid for their safety. And, you know, and they also, a lot of them don't have confidence that the police will do anything. And that was my frustration, you know, growing up. A lot of people just didn't call the police. You know, all kinds of crime, robbery, burglary, they just didn't call the police. They just had no confidence in the police. Was there a reason for that? I mean, how many times in The Wire, again, anybody Mm. who's listening to us right now, Google The Wire. Mm. It's a great series. Absolutely. But, you know, and, and it's so real life. But... It does happen where, you know, these kids would, you know, the police would say they would protect them and then ultimately they couldn't protect them. 
you know, the, 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 the gang members or whoever got to them, found out they were talking to the cops or whatever, you know, best friends were killed. Um, it's like a cycle you can't break. Yes, yes, because, I mean, there's nothing more sacred than family. So you don't, not only have to worry about your own personal safety, you have to worry about your uh, family's personal safety. There's no officers going to be sitting in front of your house for the next couple of years guarding, guarding you. And people just fall, you know, they, you know they're going to fall prey to, um, you know, to the violence, you know. So it's, it's really no protection for people. So your book, you know, takes us through the trials of trying to find this guy. Were you a- were you ever able to succeed, or do we have to read the book to find out? You have to, you have to, you have to read the, the book to find out to find out that. Yeah, yeah, it, it is just so frustrating, especially when you uh, you get to know people in the community. You get to know these young 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 men and young women, and uh, it's frustrating as an officer who you know who wants to you know make a difference. You know, trying to secure cooperation, but again, you have to worry about if they cooperate, what's going to happen to the witness? You know, so uh, and it's I and I deal with a lot of that in the book where I have people who I have I will have to worry about them getting killed. You know, I, yeah. Well, that's exactly mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like these, yeah. And were you able to protect them? Yes, yes, I was able to protect them. Some, some were we were, and other ones we weren't. Some people actually died. Yeah, they, some people actually died, and. uh and particularly when people um, just decide they're not going to cooperate and they're part of the organization, and uh, they because they are in a position to provide information, they'll kill them anyway because they won't give an opportunity for them to testify. They'll just kill them. Oh, my gosh. And we're talking kids, right? Yes. Yeah. I can't even wrap my head around what, what that must be like. Yes. You know, being, I, I don't know how you keep your, I don't know how to, you keep yourself together, you know? Yes. And that's, you know, that's another thing that I try to describe in the book is just the impact, you know, of having you know, the enormous responsibility of bringing these violent offenders to justice. It's a lot of pressure. Um, one mistake, one technicality, if you don't get something right legally, you can lose the case. And, you know, and uh, people, uh, their families are dependent on you to bring these people to justice. And, like I say, we're we're officers and detectives. You know, we're not lawyers, so we're making the best judgment we can uh, sometimes, and, and just making a split second decision about, you know, how how to handle the case. Amazing. So, are you going to keep writing? It sounds like you have a wealth oh, of information yes. to draw on. Yes, I've already started my second book. Does it is it an extension of this book or is it completely different? No, it's an extension of this book. Okay, so this book doesn't end here. Correct. Oh, so, so we the, you may not even you don't you may not find this guy by the end of this book. Yeah, well, I'll leave that for the reader to to, to, to find out. Okay. Yes, without right. a doubt, without a doubt. Now, are you out talking about your book? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, mainly through uh, word of mouth, through my some of my former colleagues in the police department. And I'm going to be featured in a security magazine here uh, in June. It was the international magazine. That's great. Yeah. And I would think that your book could be very helpful. I think so. Uh, you, get some, you really get a, a sense of how crime impacts people in the community, you know, um, so, you know, I try to do a, a good job of describing not only what the victims are going through, you know, the witnesses, the officers, the detectives, the families, 
just to get an idea of the terror, you know, that these people are experiencing, you know, having to go through the criminal justice, you know, have to deal with the criminal justice system and uh, all its flaws. That's yeah, never going to be without flaws, is it? No, not not at all. And, you know, there, you know, there are so many cases in the system and prosecutors have to make a decision on which ones they're going to actually bring to trial, which ones they can, you know, actually make in court. So a lot of cases are going, you know, going to go by the wayside or be be uh, played out. That's got to be frustrating for you. Oh, oh, abs- absolutely. You know, another thing about the book, it shows how the criminal justice system is a revolving door for many people. And not just mis- people committing misdemeanors, but people also committing felonies. They, you know, it's a revolving door and they're getting out, committing other crimes. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot in New York, you know, in New York City. People get arrested and by the time the officer's off duty, they're out again. Yes, yes. It's And it's not just New York, right? It's going on all over the place. Yeah, this is correct. And and then, you know, the other thing is there's so much of a focus on violent crime. A lot of property crimes will fall by the wayside. Like property crimes are very difficult to prosecute them because there's so many violent f- offenders out there. So, you know, people are losing, you know, uh, losing property and you know, in those cases, you know, fall, like I say, fall by the wayside and not probably investigated, if investigated at all. Well, all right. So I think it's interesting. The name of your book, Looking for Trouble. Yes. And doing something about it. Well, the interesting thing is that as I grew up in Baltimore, I spent my entire life trying to avoid trouble. And then I joined the police department and I become a magnet for trouble. <laughs> Yeah, right. it's, it's like I can't. It's like I can't. No matter where I go, I just can't. You know, I can't get away from the finding trouble, and I just I developed a knack for it. And and, and it's interesting because from a person that's pretty much a a studious nerd to a person going after serial rapists and drug kingpins and smugglers, like the, the last thing you would expect. But you know, as fate had as, as fate had it, that ended up being my calling. Right. Calling in life. How did you survive living in that environment? Did you have a good family support system? Yes. I, I, first of all, I, you know, it, it was a blessing. I, I, I give honor to God for that. Um, right. But I'm also blessed that uh, I had um, a variety of aunts and uncles that were always pouring into me. Um, teachers, you know, uh, they had a significant impact. And for me, Sunday school uh, really, um, you know, the information and Sunday school teachers all always give me words of encouragement and and let me know you know just how difficult life can be without an education and if I fall prey to crime I just you know I just feel very blessed and I know that I could have easily fallen by the wayside like many other people that I grew up with many of them were were killed like before they were even 16 years old mm. Can't, I can't yeah. even imagine. Well, yeah. what, what you were well worth the wait, Maurice Hicks. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's greatly appreciated. <laughs> you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Sharir Jahani came to the U.S. from Iran in 1978, got his Ph.D. in mechanical engineering, and was a college professor for 30 years. He had his own company, finally retired, and started writing philosophy books. But this book, The Whale Suicide, is different. It's a true story based on the diary of his friend, Parvis. What happened was, at the time, I was a college professor in uh, Fresno State. And uh, he came to the United States. Uh, because one of his friends was a PhD student at Penn State, 
and uh, he apparently found Altoona, Pennsylvania to be cheaper. He went there, but he couldn't find a job, and he had a daughter. And he contacted me, I told him, hey, why don't you come to California? There are more opportunities in California than Altoona, Pennsylvania. For sure. Actually, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, he came to Fresno and I helped him to find a job. And uh, unfortunately, uh, he got uh, very sick. And one day I received a phone call that he's in the heart hospital because he had a stroke and or heart attack. And that was his uh, second. And I went to visit him. He was in ICU and uh, he was dying there. He was in a deathbed. And uh, he told me that in his uh, home office, uh, if I go to his desk and in such a drawer, I found his uh, diary. And he wanted me to read it and turn it to a book. And uh, went and I got his diary. And five days after that, I was told that he died. Ah. And uh, I cremated him because he didn't have anybody else in here. And I, in the book, I had explained. So my inspiration uh, for writing the book was really the fact that he wanted me to write it. And when I read his diary, at the same time, it was extremely sad. It was kind of fascinating. It was uh, very appealing to me. And when I started reading his diary, it kind of explained why revolution in Iran happened. When we were in Iran during the Shah's regime, the situation was very good in my opinion. We were students. We were going to the best university in the country. It's like somebody go to Stanford or to MIT. We didn't have to pay tuition. Tuition was free. Uh, our lunch was, I would say, best lunch. The price of that was one-tenth of same lunch if we go to a restaurant outside. Even in the United States, you can't find something like that. The only thing which we had to do, we had to sign that we will uh, give uh, twice the time that we use this kind of benefit, work for the country. Okay. You work any place that you find a job in your country. That's the only thing we had to sign. Okay. And uh, the country uh, was anywhere you would go, they would respect you as an Iranian. Uh, the uh, Iranian army was fifth in the world. N Iraq would never dare to attack us. And why people went and had a revolution? And eventually in the book says what happened to this guy. He was placed in the jail. Now, the reason I call it a veil suicide is because I believe this is exactly uh, like a veil suicide. I don't know if you know it or not. Whales once in a while in a group, they go to the shore and they commit suicide. Okay. Nobody knows exactly why they do that. There are some theories, but there is not a definite theory that why they did that. I believe the Iranian revolution is like that. The people commit suicide, actually, because after the revolution, now we see that. Uh, I give you one example. During the Shah's regime, uh, he would give free food to the kids. Uh, you know, during the breaks, uh, the kids who were in the junior high and high school, 
they would get uh, pistache, they would get uh, uh, milk, they would get some lunch, um, best lunch uh, would given to them free of charge because he believed that these kids need good nutrition to be able to study. Okay. But right now you can find the kids at this era, and this is a country which is sitting on oil. These kids, their parents from the, because they are below power, to they sell their own kid. And some people, they buy them and they force them in a cold weather to wear some uh, a little clothes and shake and sell flower. And people who buy flower feel sorry for them and buy. But why during, after 40 years, uh, we see the kids who at one time would get so much pistache that they wouldn't eat it and they would sit there and play it as a marble, use that as a marble because there were too many food, too much food, too much nutrition for them. But right now they don't find even one meal a day that they have to go and in cold weather wear a little clothes, self-lover, and the reason they wear a little clothes is because people feel sorry for them. Why people sell their own kids? What happened? So right. that's a big suicide. You know what I'm saying? I do. And, I do. Uh, in this story, actually, it explained why he was attracted to communists. Uh, he was a, a, from Communist Party, but during the revolution, the communists and religious became united, and they went against the Shah. What happened? How Communist Party advertised to attract these people while they were living in a, a heaven? You know, Andrew Scott Cooper, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, wrote a, a book called it Follow Heaven. And exactly this is what happened. Then it talks about the story of this guy that when he sees that the regime changed, this is not what they were uh, thinking also, uh, he and some of his friends who were communists or things like that, uh, and including his wife, they go, uh, they go to a home and uh, they take, um, you know, they have gun and everything to uh, fight against the government. Mm. Some kind of uh, guerrilla type of gathering. I don't know what you call that, but there are groups which they do do it that uh, and uh, their house is attacked by the police okay. and uh, the detail of that is uh, uh, at the same time it is sad it represents what really happened right. there and uh, they attack they take him and they, they take him to the event prison uh, the male event prison and his wife to the female event uh, prison and he was tortured there. He was uh, put in the solitary uh, confinement. And there was a jail which is worse than solitary confinement, uh, which they call it grave. And the way it is, like, imagine a room which is, um, I would say, 10 feet by 12 feet. Mm. They put some boxes there, but you can just sit. You cannot even lay down. Oh. And uh, this way they can put 10 or 12 people in there. And uh, even when they want to go to bathroom, uh, they can't. They come every three hours and say, ba bathroom time, whether you need to go or not. Oh, if before that, 
you need to go to bathroom, you have to hold it. And this is a terrible situation. And they give you some foods that uh, maybe there are bugs there or there and either you eat it or not. And uh, he was tortured and he was uh, told that you had, he has to have forced confession. That means he say something which even didn't do it. And eventually, you know, I tell you two scenes from this book, but the rest, I don't want to tell you the entire okay. story. Because, you know, then nobody's going to buy the book, right. uh, quite frankly. And then uh, he um, come and say, hey, I'm ready to go to TV and uh, tell whatever you tell me. But the torture is so much. My, I've got disease. I have lots of problem. I need to be treated. And they say we give you sick vacation for two weeks, because uh, in the hospital, in uh, in that hospital, in the jail, uh, they don't have the facility. But under one condition, as a collateral, that you come back, you have to put your uh, house and uh, land, and your father has to take your place. Oh, my so, goodness. Uh, father, father has to come to jail, so you come back. Oh. And he has two kids, a son, and a, which is five years old, and a daughter, which is three years old. And uh, he, uh, the day the father uh, wants to take his place, hug his son, and the father goes through the ultimate sacrifice. Tell his, in, uh, in his son's ear, my son, I lived my life. I'm 65, 70 years old. Take your kid's hand and uh, never look back. We talk with a, a smuggler who traffic people out of the country. And go with him and we paid him and everything. And don't think about me. Uh, don't worry about me. So he, his father actually, that's the ultimate sacrifice to me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he uh, decided to do that. His mother even says that he he's kind of, how should I say it, uh, kind of is in dilemma that he has to do it or not. Mother right. convinced him, father voluntarily agree to take your place and even give his life for your life and your children's life. Don't hesitate, take it and go. Right. And then the wife come visit him there from jail, they let him to visit him. And uh, she tells what happened to her, which is, uh, you got to read the book, which is uh, a bit sad right. about that. And uh, then she smuggled out her country. Through his escape, uh, his son get killed. So uh, eventually found out his father was hanged, his wife was hanged, his son was killed, and he come to United States. Oh my he God. goes through lots of things, but he filed for it. He goes to, I believe, uh, in Pakistan, and in Pakistan, he goes to the capital of Pakistan uh, and filed for asylum to the United States right. and asylum is given and he come to United States and but he had to fight with his memory when he was in jail and what kind of misery and pain he went through right. when he came to US what happened 
uh, and his story of it's um, you you will find it very fascinating what happened to him and uh, the story actually is not story of parvis it's story of hundreds of parvis yeah. This story represents a story how a family was reunited because of one mistake. So this uh, book really, uh, in a terms of a story of one person who represents lots of people, uh, explain what revolution happened to Iran. Why uh, people who had everything, like whales, went and committed suicide. I hope uh, that... Wow, you got uh, some powerful stuff going on there. uh, You know, I am hoping that one day it turns to movie. I know it's a big dream, (laughs) but... uh, Well, yeah. uh, Tell Hollywood people about that. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of ironic, the way you met this guy, and then you end up, he ends up giving you access to his diary. I mean, it's it's a great story. Yeah. You know, the reason he gave uh, the right to his diary... Because he knew that he himself knew that he was very sick yeah. and he may die. Right. He didn't want his diary just to go to grave and nobody knows about right. that. And he, he wanted everybody uh, to know about that. Uh, and uh, I told people that not necessarily, I know people want to see happy ending, but um, sometimes the real life, we don't have a happy ending in the real life. Life may not be fair, but that's life. It is. You know why? I don't know. It is. That's correct. That is life. But I guess if there's a happy ending, quote unquote, it's that this man found you and this man trusted you to get his story Mm -hmm. out. And you did that. You succeeded in getting his story down on paper for the rest of the world to see. And that's pretty amazing. That's a pretty awesome thing that you've done. And that okay. that is the end of the story, is that you managed to accomplish this. This couldn't have been easy. It was written in Farsi, right? Yeah, it was written in Farsi. Oh, my God. But, I, you know, I um, Alice, I have to tell you the truth. 80%, 90% was exactly what he put it in his diary. I translated it in English, and I try to, I try very hard to write it in good English so people uh, enjoy when they're reading. I, uh, the page publishing edited for me. Uh, I should say the editor in page publishing did a very good job to read it and edit it and maybe enhance the writing at, here and there. So that's that's what basically I have. What an interesting book you have right here. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. And if you know a director in Hollywood, okay, just keep in mind. All right, you know. I'll call you when it. You know, when you're up for the Academy Award. All right. Okay. Sure. Thank you very much. <laughs> you take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Alexander Von Nett has published two books, but Ocean Odyssey, the Amalgamated States Military, is his first under the Reader House umbrella. It's good to have you, Alex. So, sounds like frustration was pretty much your motivation. Uh, a lot of things. I have to say that my own experiences, I was really frustrated with a lot of the stuff that I was seeing on TV or in the movies. Um, just a lot of garbage. A lot of stuff has been censored today. I mean, not, not as much on cable TV, but most of it on the, of the films have been censored heavily for the foreign market. And uh, they're not good movies at all. And they're really 
they're just they're not meant to offend anybody and they're not good films and they're not it's just pretty bad material and it's been a really long time of this so i just decided to write my own stuff and this one um i had an idea about world war ii in you know veterans of world war ii and i heard really amazing uh, adventure stories about soldiers who uh, served in different militaries on the same war so i was very interested in that and i just kind of figured i, I think to myself what would i do in that situation and so um i kind of placed um you know i came came up with a science fiction version i mixed real history and real you know try to describe the combat as as accurately as i could i try to make all my stories realistic but um i try to it was something i mixed with the fantasy so what happens in your book uh, it's an adventure story um you know science fiction story it's uh, about a, a german uh sailor submariner who's a captain of a u-boat and there's some action in the beginning and then uh later on in the war he gets captured uh he's sent to the u.s as a pow okay and he's at a work camp in arizona and um the marines are in need of more troops because there's a lot heavy losses on the island hopping campaign so they basically told him you know to either join the marines or or go to prison and uh, so he decided to join the marines in his pursuit of becoming a u.s citizen and you know getting away from where he came from and so um he goes on that adventure and it, a lot of hardships in the marines and you know goes on the, the battle of bougainville Saipan is another one to bring up. And so, uh, and that's where the sci-fi comes in. He's captured by an otherworldly figure after a battle. And uh, he basically missing in action the rest of the time. And he, he finds himself in an underworld, uh, under, undersea kingdom. And he's basically frozen by these very powerful mystical creatures. Uh, and he's waking, waking up a thousand years later into the far future. And then he tr tr basically he's uh, kind of a, uh, protagonist, a, a person that is looked upon to help rebuild uh, a damaged future, like an apocalyptic future, where people are trying to rebuild their civilization and their country. And he's basically somebody that came from the past that told, tells them, you know, guides them the right way. And that's kind of the idea. It's about rebuilding, rebuilding a civilization, rebuilding. And he's able to bring some real life experience to that that they have no knowledge of, right? Right, right. So he he has experience as a sailor and a marine, and he brings that to them. And he's basically put in command at some point after he was, you know, uh, you know, somebody that was recovered and found and brought back, you know, revived after being frozen. And then they at first they obviously they don't have him as a you know as a member of their crew, but then he becomes one, and then he becomes a member of a leader in the command. You know, and so he fights the he helps them fight the villains, and he he's kind of in another worldly you know, world, but it's very similar to the one that he knew is the same earth, same people, but um, like things that we consider like the Roman Colosseum is ancient, but they consider like, you know, the Washington Monument and, you know, the White House is ancient. Right, so right, right. That's how they, that's how they look at it. And it's in kind of ruin and decay. And they're, they're trying to rebuild the civilization. They only, they have these records. They have the, a lot of records of what the past was and people speak, you know, the sim similar language, almost identical languages as we speak today, but and there's uh basically he gives them a backstory and tells them what happens what not to when you have a government and a society what you try to avoid and what happened in his country was really horrible and he tries to explain that and then he tries to explain there's hope in this you know 
this new America that's being rebuilt and this, this new military. So he's a submariner and, and he's also, um, he gets to lead the Marines that they bring on board and it's uh, a lot of sci-fi and he's also working alongside the Air Force in the adventure and the new Air Force, the rebuilt Air Force. And this country is called the Amalgamated States. So it's a basically, they look at um, what we have today as the far past and this civilization that some people said, well, that doesn't really, never really existed. And he's trying to explain that it did exist and this is what they had. And this is Republic and he explains it a lot of things. So it's really just that kind of story rebuilding and hope and, uh, you know, good versus evil. And so it's a lot of, but it's R rated. It's a lot of uh, sexuality in it. So does this guy have a name? Yeah. His uh, name is Scheider. He has a German last name and he's a sailor and and, um, he interacts with the commander, mostly of the submarine. Also with this robot, it's kind of like a robot computer. It's an AI that runs uh, the Senate. And he becomes friendly with the the computer from Ohio, who's a senator, and um, basically they look at him as a leader. And he, he basically works alongside this commander. And um, he has a there's a, a female doctor that he gets involved with, who looks after him medically. And then um, he runs into a, a the bad guy. The the main bad guys. Uh, you don't see the main uh, antagonist. He just they talk about him in the story. But his daughter is the the antagonist in the story that you see, and she's like a she's like a sea witch, she's like a sorceress, and she's really, really, very, very attractive. And so he, they're really into each other. He has, she's evil, but she, he's very attracted to her. So that's he runs into her, you know, because she tricks him, and there's a series of tricks. And basically, he built he works with this group, and he's he's helping them survive, and that's kind of the adventure story. So that they kind of set up. Does does it end here? Do you wrap this all up in one book? Sure, it has a happy ending, but it doesn't end completely. There's obviously meant for more. So there's some things have cliffhangers and everything, but not completely. But it's uh, it's a story of its own, but it's meant to have sequels in the story later on. You know, it's uh, if myself or someone else wants to write more of it of the story, you know, into that world. If so- someone else, who else would write something? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like if it gets popular, I would hope that people, fans of sci-fi and military adventures would, would like it and would get popular and people would want to see more of it. If I don't have the ability or time or money to write anymore, uh, maybe somebody else can go along with it. There's other, like I said, there's other authors that might want to work with it and do some, some really good work on it on their own. There's that's happened before other franchises. So yeah, it I'm has. not really sure. I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm just gonna let it go. I'm just like I said. I'm. This is as far as I'm going. It's very expensive for me to write and edit these stories and publish them. So, um, I'm just gonna leave it at least two books for a while and uh, hope that you know other fans uh, see it and like it and you know learn about it and hope it it's you know well known and will receive well and you know you know out in the public basically. Well, I mean, you said you were frustrated because your first book there wasn't a lot of publicity. Um, do you do anything on your own? No, I've written, I don't have, there's not very much. I just do stuff on the internet with it. And that's as much as I can do. I don't have very much money. So, well, I, I, I'm talking, you know, a book signing, getting some people together that, you know, um, talking about your book at a library, talking about the process of writing, you know, there's some local libraries that do that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's so, it's so R rated and so sexually explicit that I don't, I just have a real, um, 
it's it's I have a dilemma. It's kind of I'm reluctant. That's the word I'm trying to find, say is that But but your book is not about sex. Your book is about something much bigger. You don't That's I mean, true, but the material in it, you gotta understand that this material in it is sexual I mean it's a lot and it's something there's my I would be associated with it in person. It's something that the the service you, you know, there's there's things that you don't want them connected with and that's kind of my my, my issue and I've hoping I can pay for marketing or in, in the future or somebody would market it. And that's, I can only do so much of that as long as I work there and I'm going to work there a while. And, you know, it's, it's basically, uh, it, it's kind of, it's, it's hard for me to say this is this, I'm the guy that wrote this in, in, in front of other people. That's kind of, that's always difficult for me. So everything that you would do, you would have to do on the internet. I would think so. Yes. And yeah. Facebook. Uh... Yeah. Facebook is the biggest one and people, friends see it that are interested but um that's just as far as i can go with it um, really i the money is there's not a lot of money there there's not a lot of time right um, it's either i don't write these stories and nothing gets out there or i do and i really wanted to get them out there and i paid the money and for both of them they're very expensive and um i really really like this material if, i just hope that there's other science fiction and military fans out there like myself that's kind of the reason why Right. And a, a big dissatisfaction with a lot of material that I've seen, you know, last 15 years. So you're hoping you're going to fill the void. You're filling the void. Fill the void. There's stuff that I would see years ago and I'm not seeing it anymore. And I, I know the reasons why, but it's, it's a loss for the art of, um, you know, science fiction and action uh, storytelling. Right. Maybe you could just, you know, get something going under your alias on the internet because i know that like you said there's people who love the sci-fi military uh genre and you know there's like groups of people that that flock to that kind of material and also while you're talking i'm thinking video game this would be a great yeah video right game, exactly right? <laughs> you know the, stuff like that it, some people say it is similar to a video game like well it is but it's you know, it's not meant to be, it's, it's meant to be, you know, a novel and then meant to be a TV show or movie. And that's kind of the thing I wanted to go with instead of, I don't like the franchise. It's not a, it's not a kid's thing like Power Rangers or something. It's not Ninja Turtles. No. It's just nothing like that. It's adults only. And so I try to really make it that way. I guess a, a video game series called Witcher, that's something I would compare it to. Yes. Yeah, that's more adults. Right. Not, that's not kids. It's stuff, adults. So. No. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, and I think that's a book. So that's kind of what I'm thinking and um, that's where it's going. And I don't play a lot of video games. I just, like I said, I go to the movies or I read a lot of books and when I have time and I, I do see TV shows when I have time and I just shake my head, you know, it's, it's so awful. Some of the material I know, or some I of know. it is, some of it will be go, will go into realms that I like. And then there's real dark and ugly messages and real violent and real nihilistic. And I'm like, what, 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 you know, what am I watching here? Yeah. Nothing, nothing enjoyable. This is not joy. This is like watching a train wreck. Right. Well, do you get joy out of writing? And was it joyful to see that your book was published? It is. It's just yeah. a lot of joy writing. I get these ideas and I want to put them down. I want to come up with more morally patriotic themes in the story. Right. And that's missing, you know, I think in other stuff. So. Right. Well, that's saying something, Alexander. Yeah. Right. All right. Finally, Matthew Hockey is proof boredom can be a spark for creativity, which for him resulted in his book, The Intangible Tangerine. Um, well, basically, um, I had some time off and I was looking for something to do. And I pretty much just uh, figured what I could do is write a book. Wasn't real sure what I was going to write it about. 
but I just kind of took some time, uh, thought about it a little bit, and just kind of came up with a little fictional tale that I kind of added some stuff to. Kind of like, say, if it was a skeleton, it would be like adding, like, say, a character would be an organ or something like that, just adding some, adding muscle and blood. Different <laughs> parts of the body would, would kind of, like, form into a book. That's how I kind of kind of tried to do it. Ha- have you ever written before? No. Well, in, in like, high school, we'd, we'd always have, like, different um, reports and different things that we'd have to do. But, yeah, this is my first published work. You just decided, eh, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, what I did is I went through the dictionary with my eyes closed, and uh, I waited for the uh, – I opened them as I had – oh, I had my uh, finger on the page, and I went through several pages, and whenever I opened them, I, I uh, was on intangible. So I started with that that word and wrote it on a piece of paper and circled it and then did about five more words like that and circled those and uh, drew arrows to each other. And then I really can't remember how I did it. It was something like that, but it came up with a completely fictional book to where I could just add stuff in the middle, but I would have to take notes and make some, some sort of story. So it's a, it's really like, to me, it seems like it's a very fabricated story, but it, it comes together pretty well. Was the next word you landed on tangerine? No, no. I just, I'm not sure how I came up with, with tangerine. With that. Yeah, but I know it was intangible because, like, I used, uh, like, when I was in high school, I had a teacher, and she was one of my favorite teachers. And she let me take home for the summer um, probably about 30 or 40 different uh, quizzes like vocabulary quizzes and I use those for like a, to broaden my vocabulary and I'd read through the dictionaries and the sources a lot. That's what I really like to do. I don't know. It was kind of, it was a little bit different, but it made it easier. That way it just didn't seem like I was making something up. I had a purpose to make it up for the words that I would find. How'd you come up with Phil the bear? Um, there was a, a little boy that I took care of at church when I was in junior high and uh, he was autistic and his name was Philip. And he was always, he would, uh, he would never have like his, like flare ups with me. He was a real nice little kid. And, uh, I just decided I'd name it after him, the main character. That's so sweet. And you made him a little bear. Yep. And, and he was hibernating and couldn't find any food in the forest. Mm-hmm. So what happens? Well, they meet up with a couple more animals they're not really like indigenous animals it's since it is like a, a fictional tale, but they meet together and uh, they find a way to, well, they communicate with each other to try to go ahead and get food. But then they have a, a, a creature come that starts to help them. And that's when the, it's kind of like a fictional magical tale starts to incur. And then they go through a uh, kind of like a little adventure to, basically makes their lives a little bit more plentiful to where they can stay in the uh, in the area that they're in to make it a, a little bit better for them to live. Well, tell me who Phil meets while he's looking for food. Um, it's Tolan the kangaroo, uh, Terrence the tree frog, and uh, Bob the rhinoceros. And then there's another character that's not mentioned um, on the back of the book or in the uh, description because that's the... Uh, that's when the, the more magical fictional tale starts. I was thinking that would be better to be left as a surprise. Okay. When you say the magical, what makes it magical? 
Well, the um, the father of that character that I didn't mention is that was a wizard that has had disappeared from the uh, from the forest. That's why the forest is in such bad shape, is because no one had been there to uh, to care for it. So the animals they come together and they when they meet the magical character, they get uh, special powers to where they can help take care of the forest and help the other animals. Uh, pretty much learn learn together, make them to where they, or learn together and make them feel safe, to where they can go ahead and continue with their lives instead of having to worry about the uh, the forest dying. So you've got a real message there. Yeah, it's uh like I had um I I hadn't read a lot, like I know um I get um, environmental science magazines like Sierra Club or Nature Conservancy, um, like those magazines, I donate to them. And I usually, I'll read those type of, those type of stories and books. That's why I, I kind of wanted to have a message to, uh, to younger readers that would kind of make, I know they aren't going to think magic is actually real, but well, possibly they wouldn't think that to an extent, but it would make them feel that any extra effort or a thought of it could maybe give like a better feeling or an easier feeling on uh, how nature can be taken care of or how it can work out. Because what I realized is that when I was younger, we'd look at a lot of different animals and we talk about pollution, but now it's more like the, uh, the secluded forests or uh, deserts or the different areas like Antarctica to where we've never really been where, well, people have been there, but we haven't uh, figured everything out about it. It's like a, uh, it's, it makes it a lot more interesting to where it's easier to learn. And it's kind of like a, uh, a capability of wanting to learn a lot more easier to grasp, I guess. Right, right. Now, are, are you able to go out and promote your book? Um, well, I've taken a, um, a copy to the uh, library where I live, they have a local authors area and I have given them one of those. Uh, I'll send one to my dad and they were going to try to work it into where they could read it during group. I was also going to try to send some, I had called St. Jude, but they don't take uh, donations that way, but I'm going to uh, try to get my uh, reviews done first so I can have a little bit more to where people can, if they go look at it, like if they, and I kind of see it as if the parents see that there's going to be a book signing, then it's going to be, they want to go look and see what the book's like. But really too, um, the category that my book was put in was a young uh, adult fiction and fantasy adventure. So it's really to that 14 to 17. So it's uh, being that it's 55 pages long. I think that's why I took it up from, like say a, a children's book to a young adult, which really if there's a younger reader that's looking for a challenge to read a little bit more and they can get a grasp on the goodness of nature, then that would be like a a way to where a younger reader could read it. But I don't, I'm not really sure if I should try to do book signings. I'm still kind of getting all the websites and reviews and uh, the different things of that nature kind of settled up and, uh, getting those done in an order because it's new to me. I know it was, uh, it took me several years to, to kind of get everything put together because I worked off and on on it. I was still working then. 
And uh, what did you do when you were working? Uh, I worked at different restaurants. Um, I worked at a gas station for the most part of about 12, 12 years. And uh, I had all the everything done. But the one thing that I never really got a hold of was that you could self-publish. I had always thought that um, the only thing that I would be able to do was to get like uh, a contract signed with Disney or I think I had gone to books a million and picked up a, uh, a marketplace reader's guide. I'm not sure if that's what it was called, but uh, that kind of helped out. But then I just kind of put it on the back burner and waited. But uh, finally I got it, got it all settled up and finished and, uh, and yeah, it's out there published, has my name on it. And I'm just wor working on getting everything promoted now. That's the way to do it. One step at a time. You got to keep writing. I'm going to see how this book does because I have an idea to uh, to maybe write two of them. One for the good and one for the evil. And then that way it, it might be a little bit or for uh, somebody a little bit older or actually for maybe that young adult uh, fantasy adventure crowd again just because it could be like a simple book to kind of get a reader excited about it. And then if I can maybe make a longer, a longer book that might be around like 150 pages uh, that have the good aspects of how all that comes together. And then the, the more uh, evil aspects of, of the book, how it can come together and then have, those two books, but I, I, I'm really going to have to see how this book goes first because I'm not sure if, if it would be eventful for me to, to take the time to write those two. I know it would take a lot of time, but I have time to write them, so I might just go ahead and, and put them together. All right. Well, you know, good job. You know, just from picking words out of a dictionary to a published book, that's pretty good, Matthew. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Have a good one. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.